0: than goal. They're going to snap it. And it's Trey Burton who throws, caught, falls, touchdown. How do you figure? They go to the very, very, very back of the plague book for Remember That Guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. It's me, your Super Bowl forty-nine MVP, James.
1: Joined by a man that went absolutely psycho when that happened. I literally, I couldn't get words out. I just like had a big, stupid smile on my face when the Philly special happened. But all that to say, my name is Diaz, and we're here with person that actually executed another incredible play in Super Bowl history, the man behind the helmet catch, David Tyree, with us. No, he's not, but we do have another New Yorker, and he's just as good. Please introduce yourself.
2: That's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. Unfortunately, David Tyree was a little caught up in things. My dad saw him and had to go... Talked to him for about 50 minutes straight about that one play, so I got called in instead.
0: Well, and of course, famously, David Tyree has never made another appearance anywhere since the helmet catch, so it's only appropriate that that continues. And like Nick Foles, uh, Xavier, it's appropriate that you come here with your powers of the backup. You wouldn't be a very special guest if it wasn't in this emergency fashion every time. I also just want to say about the Philly special, it's the smartest I've ever felt in my life watching football, because when he touched the line I was like, wait, he's an eligible receiver, and then that happened. I will never match that feat in terms of feeling like I knew what was going on in a game. But hey, again, that's memory from the past, and I would like to know our very special guest, Xavier, our very own Footlong Foles, Uh, who's making memories for you now? So, the WNBA
2: is making memories for me, and not in a good way. It just came out a couple days ago that WNBA uh, had fined the New York Liberty uh, and their owner, Joseph Tsai, $500,000. You might be wondering what they did to you know, garner this fine.
1: They had to have com- compromised competitive balance, you know, some Shh. cheating. Surely Five-day. there
0: was mistreatment of players, maybe not providing them with adequate facilities or something like that. So the New York Liberty, too nice to their own players, Joe
2: Tsai, from his own money, funded the Liberty using charter flights to make it easier for the players to get to their games during the second half of the season. And also funded a trip for them all to go out to Napa to enjoy a nice wine tour in Napa, which, you know, sounds like such a nice thing to do for your team. Unfortunately, as part of the WNBA CBA, hard flights are limited to only a little bit, because a lot of owners don't want to spend any money, and they don't want other teams to get an advantage by spending money that they do have. So Joseph Tsai and the New York Liberty got in trouble for being too nice to their players. And if that isn't uh, you know, upsetting enough, the information that we have from the reporting was Joe Tsai told the entire league, I have a way that we can get the whole league free chartered flights for three years. You know, you think, wow, that would be incredible. Like, that should be fantastic. Unfortunately, the the other owners did not see it that way. This is a quote from the Sports Illustrated article. Some owners worried that players would get used to it, so there'd be no going back, and others wondered whether players might just prefer a salary hike instead. So instead of saying, "Oh, we can get free chartered flights to make everyone happy and make things better for our athletes." No, they might get used to it. So, we don't want to we don't want to have to then put the bill 3 years from now.
1: Well, I mean, let's be real cuz let's look at this from the owner's perspective, right? Nobody ever thinks of the owners in these disputes. And first, you got to pay for the chartered flights. Then maybe what are we talking are, are, are there meals on these flights? Are they expected to feed them? What are they going to drink on the bench? Does the water need to be cold? Do we need to put ice in the water? Do we need to put Gatorade mix in there to restore their electrolytes? It's a very slippery slope, Xavier. And I think that we need to just kind of understand the plight of the owners here. There are severe risks to treating your athletes that are on your team like human beings. There's a very inherent risk to that.
2: So the, the WNBA's uh, general counsel, Eamon Derwitz, Floated possible remedies to punish the Liberty for this situation. Again, which is treating their players too well. And And I I mean, mean, a,
0: a money fine. That's certainly what this is going to come out to, right? Nothing more serious than that. They don't want to damage the reputation of this growing league or anything. So three of the options that were floated
2: as possible punishments. Losing every draft pick you have ever seen. Suspending ownership or... Grounds for termination of the franchise. Yes, they considered shutting down the entire New York Liberty because they treated their players too well.
0: If you had asked me before this year, like, what things Kathy Engelbert has done wrong, easily the highest approval rating of any commissioner in North American professional sports by a wide margin coming into this year. I mean, there have been already rumblings of like some discontent this offseason. Liz Cambage now with the Los Angeles Sparks, which is a little bit unfortunate because she will no longer be with the Las Vegas Aces. But that's fine. We do have fan favorite Sydney Colson coming back on a training camp invite. This has been your Las Vegas Aces Minute. But uh, like Liz Cambage said she wanted to peace out because Becky Hammon was going to get paid a million dollars a year, which isn't that much for professional sports coach and is more than any player can make. And it's it's not a good look for now. Them to be talking about, oh, you know, just getting rid of a successful franchise in the single largest media market in the United States.
2: One of the things that really like rubbed me the wrong way was in in this article, they talked about, you know, how the other owners refuse to even consider the better working conditions and how one owner, (laughs) one owner views this as a charity. They proclaim the value of the WNBA team as zero, so all he spends is a contribution towards the greater good of women's sports. And he's such a fantastic, charitable person for even giving them anything whatsoever.
1: I mean, look, they provide the uniforms. They provide the court. You know, the players don't have to pay rent (laughs) when they go to play. It is very generous of the owners. You can't tell folks. That was sarcasm. But on a real note, no, Kathy Engelbert has been on my shit list for a little bit for her blatant refusal to put a team in Philadelphia, a market that is begging, begging for an WNBA team. It would be so easy. You bring Elena Deladon. She's from right down the road in Wilmington, Delaware, is where she played her high school ball. You bring her in as the local superstar. Delaware alone is going to sell out all your home games. Figure out however much you got to pay Dawn Staley to come back and coach the team. Call them the Philadelphia Freedom, and you play the Elton John song after every win, just like we play here come the Sixers. Kathy, if you're listening, I just gave you everything you need to set up the most successful franchise in your WNBA. You just need to do it. I don't understand why Philadelphia doesn't have a team.
0: Kathy Engelbert, case, This is your PR pivot to to get away from the shit that you have gotten yourself in right now. Take this advice right now and maybe you can salvage this.
1: You can distract the masses very quickly. I will withdraw all of my criticism of everything that the WNBA has ever gotten wrong. I will become the most blatant show that there is. I will be all in. You just gotta give Philadelphia a team. You can write this wrong, Kathy. And you also won't make even a designated have designated
2: to- player rule. Do that because WNBA has been around for 25 years. The NWSL has been around since 2012. The NWSL just gave Trinity Rodman, 19 year old, who had played one year, 1.1 million dollars a year for four years in her in her contract. So this 19 year old in a Less than 10-year-old league, five times more per year than the best WNBA player. Like, I get that you want to keep the salary caps low, but do what MLS does, where you have one or two, one or two players where you say, okay, we can pay them more, but it only counts a certain amount towards the cap. So it's be like, oh, we want to give Diana Taurasi a million dollars because she's Diana Taurasi. Sue Bird or Brianna Stewart. Okay, you give them a million dollars, but it only counts 200000 towards the cap. Then you incentivize owners putting together teams with stars and paying them like stars.
1: The biggest failing of it, we don't even need to mention the specific dollar amounts, the fact that women's basketball as a sport, not just the WNBA, but women's basketball on the professional elite level is the only sport where the elite athletes need to play in multiple leagues to be able to get their actual true worth. And they get paid more when these WNBA players go to play in Europe or any of the other leagues around the world. They get paid more to go play internationally, not on like a per game basis. Like, no, they literally sign contracts that are worth more money than the WNBA pays them. And the WNBA is obviously the elite league for women's basketball in the world. And they're not paying competitive salaries relative to their own sport, not even relative to other American sports, which is... A completely separate conversation that we could also dive into. But even relative to their sport in a world context, they do not pay comparable wages. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, no, we we are all fans. We would like better. Um, We'll just leave it at that. It's very fucking stupid, but I'm very mad about. So we're going to move on to another thing that's not making me upset at all right now is baseball. And that's because I have turned my brain off about Major League Baseball and I'm focusing on all the other kinds of baseball because there's so much more baseball. There's good college baseball right now. And then there's a guy named Bob Babb. And for 43 years, he has been the Johns Hopkins University baseball coach, including all of the entirety of my life where I've grown up near Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and he just this week recorded his 1200th win. I admit I did not look to see how many other people have gotten it it's a whole lot. And it's come at a 71% roughly win rate his entire career. He's been an absolute dominant guy for the level that the Hopkins students play at in uh, baseball, which they're not upper echelon. But all Hopkins sports within their respective conferences do very well. And Bob knows about that because for 23 years, he was also a football coach at Johns Hopkins. Gave it eventually, to one of his former students who then took over from him as the coach of the Hopkins football team. But he continues as the coach of the Hopkins baseball team. And, uh, hey, let's see if you get to 1,300, Bob. Uh, so good for him. Baseball's great. I don't know what you're talking about. There's baseball going on right now, and it's amazing.
1: I want to give a shout-out to the Penn Quakers going down into Texas. And normally when these Northeast baseball teams go down south late February, it's usually to get their asses handed to them. Quakers took two out of three from the Aggies. So shout out to the Penn Quakers, Coach John Yurkow. When I was running the broadcast for Penn Athletics, I would put Coach Yurkow easily in my top three of the Penn coaches that I ever dealt with. Great personality, great guy, and happy to see his program having some early season success. So hopefully the start of great things for the Quakers, go for an Ivy League title get into that 64 crazy regional, super regional before you get to the actual thing that Xavier was able to enlighten us on last week. Cause I truly never understood how it really worked. All that to say fight on pen, keep on quaking baby.
2: Also shout out to Jocelyn Allo uh, of the Oklahoma Sooners, uh, women's softball team who is most likely going to break the career home run record for women NCAA women's softball on Monday when she plays uh, I think Minnesota she
0: is that 90... just us saying that Minnesota is ass and she's going to destroy them she has 95 home runs so far in
2: her nca career and she hit she averages one every two games essentially and she didn't hit one against Utah last week she's she's going to she's going to hit one it's either going to be against Minnesota or against Baylor i can't imagine her going another couple games without without a home run she had 34 homers last year in 60 games
1: Remember when
2: Oklahoma last year, like that was some of the most
1: exciting collegiate championship that I've ever seen when Oklahoma was going against JMU and Odyssey Alexander was just lighting the world on fire. Yes,
0: I I really enjoy. I think it's something because I would just walk by the Hopkins Stadium on the walk home from school for for forever. And I just I have that ping sound just Buried deep in my brain, and it's been nice getting back into college baseball, not at all because there's not a lot of alternatives. This is a silver line to the situation we're in. It's been nice to revisit this. I just
1: I want to say one other thing, just about softball in general. Every complaint that anybody has about baseball is solved by softball. The games take too long. They don't waste any fucking time in softball. Pitcher gets the ball, she's back in the circle. she's what, fucking whipping that thing home again real quick. You get the dominant pitchers, they get more strikeouts, but I do feel there's more balls in play in softball. There's action on the base pads all the time. Fast-paced, exciting, shorter porch, more home runs sometimes. I'm just saying, if baseball wants to keep fucking around, softball has an opening here.
0: So- softball is ready to find out.
1: While baseball is fucking around.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of fucking around, it's, it's enough of that from us. Uh, let's just hurry up and get to the Sixers digest from from Diaz over here.
1: Sixers Digest, what an incredible start it has been to the James Harden era. So by the time that listeners are able to take in this episode, the Sixers will have played two more games. They host Cavaliers on Friday and then going back down to Miami on Saturday for a game that could end up having some pretty massive implications for the one seed. A very, very big game. But the start to the James Harden era in the first three games could not have been better. The only thing that you could say is Tobias Harris looks pretty shitty. But Tobias, there's time. We trust you. Instant chemistry that Harden and Embiid have had has been incredible to see. It looks like they played their entire lives together. I think that really just speaks to with both of them. I think with Harden, his basketball IQ is very appreciated. Obviously, he also has otherworldly physical gifts and skill as well. But I think that's something that gets forgotten. When it comes to Embiid, especially as somebody that came to the sport as late in life as he did, not really playing basketball until I think the age of 14 is when he first started playing. For somebody who came to the game so late to think and see the game so well, he goes to the exact right spot off of every time they do the pick and roll or the pick and pop with Embiid and Harden. The the real thing that I'm excited to see is the the Warriors run the action, right? Where Draymond comes up, sets the screen for Curry. They double Curry because if you don't double Curry, he's going to shoot the three. And then Draymond gets the ball and he has that four on three now where he just has mm-hmm. to make a quick decision, find the open man. That's something I think is going to be a major play. We haven't really seen it yet with the Sixers with this current edition. But I think that's going to be something that's going to end up happening. And obviously the help's going to come much quicker on Embiid than it did when you're dropping that to draymond so that's going to be an interesting thing and we've already seen somewhat matisse Tybull's scoring has been up because hey when i would say two of the top five offensive talents in the game today are both on the floor at the same time guys like matisse will get wide open dunks pretty frequently
0: Tyrese Maxey maxi's averaging what like 26 the last couple games or something like that so i saw a
1: stat tyrese maxi has been out of this world and The Sixers, big three. And that is what it is. It's not just the big two. Tyrese is the third star. He needs to be recognized as such. And because, particularly of the stat that I'm about to say. So, obviously, there have been some incredible big threes in recent years. The stat, when you hear it, you're going to think, okay, so like uh, Tim Duncan, Manu, Tony Parker. It's not surprising that they did not each score at least 20 in the first three games that they played together. Because you had rookie Tony... You had rookie Manu not playing a lot of minutes, but when you think of, for example, the Heat big three, mm-hmm. D Wade, LeBron, Bosh, they never each scored twenty in their first three games. You think of KG, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen, they did not do that. You think of KD, Steph, Clay, they did not do that. But the big three, really,
0: that that one is surprising.
1: There is only one big three in the history mm-hmm. of NBA to each score at least twenty points in their first three games playing together, and that is Joel Embiid. James Harden, and Tyrese Maxey. And I mean, even think to like, so like last year, the the first three games that Kyrie, KD, and Harden played together, they didn't do that.
0: Well, how spread out were the first three games that the three (laughs) of them played together? (laughs) It's fair. fair. They didn't have a lot of continuity. It was what, 16 total?
1: 16 or 17, I forget which. Yeah, that was like the, that was the extent of the games that they played together. But One of my biggest concerns when the trade was made, and I'm not saying that you don't make the trade. I always wanted to make the trade. But one of the concerns with the trade was how does Tyrese Maxey respond now? He has looked so good with this elevated responsibility having to be the point guard because Ben Simmons. And he looks so good with that elevated responsibility. But it's like, okay, now that we're going to have another ball-dominant player on the floor eating up possessions, how is that going to affect Tyrese? So far, it's elevated his game to another level. His ability to catch and quickly attack, you know, weak side rotating defenses that aren't in position with his speed, he's getting whatever he wants. And he had a couple shots last night that just so again, this you all are going to hear this on Monday. So when I say last night, I'm referring <laughs> to the Wednesday night game that they played at home, Harden's home debut against the Knicks. Max, he had two shots in that game. One was he did the hardened step back. He came around a screen. He's dribbling to the left side. And from like the top of the key hits the step back to easily get behind the three-point line and nothing but net. But the shot that I was really freaking out about was there's about 230 left. The Sixers were up, I believe, 10 at the time. So the game's not quite put away, but we're feeling good. It's getting down to the end of the shot clock. R.J. Barrett did a really good job defending Maxi, sealed him off, denied his passing lane. And in one swift motion, Maxi just spins back to the outside, creates space w- with his dribble picked up. I want to mention. Verse pivots back out, turns in midair, and just drains the fucking three. Unreal. You know they they can do the damn thing. They really can. They can do the damn thing if everybody stays healthy and if Doc Rivers does not play DeAndre Jordan more minutes than like eight a game. We did just sign DeAndre Jordan today. I'm a little upset about it.
0: Here's what I what I've been immediately struck by on the DeAndre Jordan thing. At one point, people barricaded him in his house to stay on their team. KD and Kyrie love his vibes so much that they got him what, like a one-year, ten million dollar contract? There does seem to be something about DeAndre Jordan that other players really like. And if and if you need those vibes, you can yeah. spare one roster spot for vibes.
1: He he does have vibes, but I would prefer a center that does not have his feet stuck in concrete. And also part of this is that I'm just scarred. I think back to the Raptors series where Embiid was plus 98 in the minutes that he was on and the Sixers were minus 109 in the minutes that he was off, including a minus 12 in the two minutes that he was off the court in a game seven that they lost by two points. I'm not scarred, though. I'm not scarred that I can recall these statistics exactly. What are you talking about? I don't need to go to therapy about this. But
0: Hey, <laughs> hey we're on a rocket ship to the moon right now. And I say we because you know what? God damn it. I'm on the bandwagon and I I love riding a good, Philly bandwagon. And none of us were born there. Diaz, you know, you're as close to it as you are to Baltimore and other places. We all choose what? fandom. And I don't think there's anything wrong with people having a second Second team and everything. I'm I'm all about it and it's been so convenient since going to college and getting to choose to have some allegiance to somewhere, uh, that also all of the teams are in the opposite conferences in my number one. So it's it's never really a conflict of interest. I love joining in a good Philly bandwagon. It's very contagious. And for that reason I just wanted us to, to celebrate a little bit, you know? Let's ride this high. It's great right now. It's a great time. And it made me recall kind of the first time that I that I indulged in in the madness of Philly sports. And I want to take you, gentlemen, back to that time. It is October 30th, 2013. Several fun sports things are going to happen this evening. At about 8 o'clock, the Boston Red Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals will play Game 6 of the 2013 World Series. Red Sox do win that game, their third championship in about a decade. Going back to basketball, here's some things to set the time. On the Sacramento Kings, in their win, Boogie puts up 30 points. The second highest scorer on the Sacramento Kings is a, is a longtime favorite of Diaz's and I's, Marilyn Terp Grievous Vasquez. Grievous Vasquez had 17 points to go along with Boogie's 30 that night for the Kings. Dwight Howard, in his debut for the Houston Rockets, got 26 total rebounds more than half of what Charlotte's Bobcats got that night in their first game that season. Their last season is the Charlotte Bobcats against the Dwight Howard, James Harden, Houston Rockets. We even had some debuts that evening. Anthony Bennett, the number one overall pick, debuted for the Cleveland Cavaliers against the KG Paul Pierce Brooklyn Nets. Paul Pierce had 17 points with a minus five plus minus, which I think is particularly funny because Anthony Bennett in his debut had 15 minutes, two points, and was plus 10. But, I am here to talk about a different debut, and it's one that is taking place at 3601 South Broad Street at the Wells Fargo Center in front of a sellout crowd of 19,523 people and also on television about five miles north or so on Broad Street uh, as you and I Diaz watch the beginning of something. It's about a minute 56 into the game, and a rookie has already stolen an errant pass for a dunk to get his first two points ever in his career, then immediately gets his first assist. He hits his first three of the game. All of this has happened before the opposing team finally calls a timeout down 9 nothing. The thing about this opposing team is that they are the two-time defending world champion Miami Heat. And this team that we are watching is the Process Sixers. And they are currently being led by number 10 overall pick Michael Carter-Williams. damn it. <laughs> MCW. Can I just say, first of
1: all, they started 3-0. and They beat... The Heat, the John Wall-led Wizards, and then they went into Chicago and beat the Bulls, who were like the projected number two team in the East that year. Of course, you know, as you said, this was the process Sixers. We were supposed to suck. I wanted us to suck. And of course, we start off 3-0, and and everybody's like, now wait just a goddamn second.
0: <laughs> Here's the thing, Diaz. When you talk about the 3-0 and start, I want to zero in on this game. I want to talk about the process because the process has been a beautiful thing to watch. It is every hour long session of Madden or 2K or whatever franchise y'all are playing where you just start over and suck for a while because you understand that that's what needs to be done to build long term success. But no one was ever willing to do it in professional sports really on that level. And it was just so beautiful to see the beginning of this happen right here with the process, which I think we can all agree is probably most associated with. If if not Joel Embiid, nickname and everything. Sam Hinkie is the first name that I think of when I think of the process. I don't think that's that's too much of a shocker for, for anyone that's not uninitiated to this.
1: So that's not
0: a hot take at all.
1: And you're right. And that's the first person I think of besides Embiid, who did literally adopt the nickname The Process. And I just want to give context on why that was particularly awesome. When Embiid was making his debut, the Sixers CEO, Scott O'Neill, who is a piece of shit, tried to distance the franchise from the process so he started a hashtag on twitter process to progress saying we're moving on from the process now we're making actual progress we all hated that shit and that's when Embiid came out and said fuck you not only do i love the process not only do i love sam hanky my nickname is the process and i want to be introduced as the process so that's the full origin story of how he adopted the nickname but yes yeah, sam Hinkie famously Never called what he was doing the process. Never said, trust the process. Tony Roten, actually, was the person who originated trust the process. And then it was made famous, of course, by the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. But Sam hinkey, I do agree, most associated with the process. Never said the process.
0: I love it. He trusted the process so much that after he interviewed to be the GM before the 2012-2013 season and was turned down in place of Tony DeLeo getting the gig, he was still able to trust the process enough to come back and interview the next year after Tony DeLeo was fired and then successfully get the job. That is something that I did not know about Sam Hinkie. I am fascinated by him because he's just the first person to outwardly say, I feel like middle is death. You never want to be in the middle because you will be stuck in the middle forever. You either want the stars or you want to suck so you have the draft picks to get the stars. It is just about the draft and stars. He didn't have any stars to start with, so we had to start with the draft. Shout
2: out T.J. DeLeo.
1: So T.J. DeLeo is the son of Tony DeLeo, who was the Sixers GM. But T.J. DeLeo was a backup point guard for our Temple Owls. Just the most perfect quintessential backup college point guard of all time. Maybe five nine. He always made the right play. Really the... TJ DeLeo walked so that TJ McConnell could run in Philadelphia is really what it comes I'm down so to. glad
0: you made the connection more artfully than I ever could have. I was trying to figure out beautiful baby. That's why I'm here. Well, as we said, it's all about the stars and it's all about the draft. And the first draft pick that Sam Pinky gets to make is with the number 10 overall pick for mcw let's check in with mcw actually real quick in that game because surely things have cooled down after this uh no actually he just got his third steal of the game and then passed it to the red hot spencer hawes to get another assist as spencer hawes drained one in fact the entire starting five is hot which is insane diaz can you name the starting five for this first process game i can definitely name four
1: so it's mcw it's evan turner it's thad young it's spencer hawes I want to say James Anderson is the fifth. You are
0: absolutely correct. It is James Anderson. Let's go. Uh, They are all absolutely killing it to the point where when MCW sits for the first time in the game with three minutes and three seconds left in the first quarter, they're up 28-9 to over the two-time defending champion Miami Heat. MCW already has five points, four assists, four steals. It's incredible. And for the MCW heads that already existed at that time, if any did, this would not have been a surprise. He has made his living at this point as a defender his entire career. That is what he was noticed for in high school when he was an All-American. He is a 2011 graduate. He is in our high school graduating class. Wait, what the fuck have we done? But after that, he is recruited into Jim Boheim Syracuse Orange, and that is a defensive factory. Always has been because Jim Boheim is one of the few people that runs a 2-3 zone defense in college basketball. That is with his two guards stationed roughly at the two points where the semicircle of the foul line meets the rest of it, and then his center near the basket and the two forwards flanking it. And they just play zone defense that you might have one guard pick up the ball handler, come across the half court. But on that, you just try to funnel them to the places where they don't want to have to take shots, but eventually will, because that's where there aren't defenders. And then you try and capitalize on that. And so, again, for the MCW heads out there, His defense was no surprise at this point, but his Syracuse career was not without some struggle. Uh, His freshman year, he was really kind of muted because he couldn't even be the best Syracuse player off the bench. Do you know who was? It's a quintessential sixth man. In fact, it is the college sixth man of the year this year. My friends, it is the ultimate heat check, Dion Waiters. Dion Waiters lights (laughs) the world on fire as the sixth man of the year for the Syracuse Orange and MCW's freshman year. Also, a Philly boy, yes, Philly born up in Syracuse, absolutely killing it. So, it's not until MCW's sophomore year, after he bulks up in the offseason, that he really kind of gets noticed. But that year, he is clearly the star on the Syracuse team, leads them to the Elite Eight. And so, that's what garners the attention of Sam Hinkie. Now, he is there, and he is one of, as the coach has said, six NBA players on the roster. That coach is four-time NBA champion as an assistant with the San Antonio Spurs, longtime assistant to Greg Popovich, just passed up the head assistant coach or the chief assistant. I don't know what the adjective that you would put in front of assistant to denote that you were the main assistant, but basically the number two under Greg Popovich, uh, Budenholzer, going to take that spot instead because Brett Brown decides to come to Philadelphia and build something with Sam Hinkie. Did say, heading into this season, Well, you have six NBA players, and then you have a bunch of guys fighting for spots who want to be seen and need opportunity.
1: I just want to say, Brett Brown, I loved him. I wanted us to get it done with him as the coach so badly, and we did get close. But while he may not have been the right coach to get us to a championship, I don't think there's a better person in basketball that could have gotten us through those four years because... To hear Brett Brown speak, first of all, he has this lovely accent that is like about 50% like Maine lobster guy and 50% Australian. You hear those and you're like, how do those two go together? Well, when you hear Brett Brown, you hear how they go together. It is, it's a symphony to me, his accent, but also just his positivity and the fact that his (sighs) roots with the spurs is that he was the player development specialist on that coaching staff so if you have a bunch of guys that are fringe nba players and you want to see them develop into actual guys that's the person that you want and i think the proof is in if you look around the nba you look at how many great role players emerged from those teams so from a role player perspective you got tj mcconnell robert covington rashawn holmes and then you look at a player like jeremy grant who's turned into. A fringe all-star, best player on the Pistons, you know, for what it's worth. But he is the best player on the Pistons. There's always <laughs> got to be a best player on every team. Obviously, I think he deserves some credit for the player that Embiid has become. So Brett Brown was absolutely the right man for that job. And just a an incredibly warm and beautiful man. I, I, I wish him well wherever he is right now.
0: Here's what we'll say. He knew what he signed up for, uh, because after he takes MCW out in both the first and the second, we do see what a lot of the next four years of Sixers basketball are going to look like. It very quickly goes from 28-9 to 34-22 as the Heat outscored them by seven before MCW is brought back in, because now they're remembering, oh right, we've got Chris Bosh and we have LeBron James. They did not have Dwayne Wade this evening, and the roster that Brett Brown signed up for is what it is. but hey, tonight... He has Michael Carter-Williams. And Michael Carter-Williams decides, I'm just going to duel with LeBron James for a little bit. For the next six minutes and ten seconds, the final six minutes and ten seconds of the half, on the Heat side, all but two buckets come as either a LeBron James score or a LeBron James assist. And on the Philadelphia side, all but two buckets come as a Michael Carter-Williams score or a Michael Carter-Williams assist. It is MCW and LeBron James going head-to-head. And after all of that, after these six minutes and ten seconds of this duel, the Sixers still lead, 51-49. Michael Carter-Williams at this point has 11 points, 2 rebounds, 8 assists, and 6 steals at the half. The thing is, MCW is not even supposed to be the star from that last draft. His former AAU teammate, who is injured on the bench in Erlands Noel was the one that was potentially the franchise changer from that first draft. But here we are with MCW doing what he's doing. Let's start with the good news from the third quarter. Michael Carter-Williams gets his 10th assist on a James Anderson 3, so he has a double-double now in his debut. That's absolutely phenomenal. He is also going to get his 7th steal. That is a record for the most in a rookie debut all time. Uh, He's beating some guy that was playing for, like, Buffalo at one point. So, phenomenal record, and that's about all the good, because the Heat put on 45 points this quarter, and the last 12 for the Heat are particularly painful. They are a 24-foot Ray Allen 3. Assisted by LeBron James, a 25-foot Ray Allen three, assisted by LeBron James, a 26-foot Ray Allen three, assisted by LeBron James, and a 48-foot unassisted three by Ray Allen with 0.1 seconds to put the Heat up 94-85. It looks like okay, this Sixers run was fun, but it is going to be what we expect and what people expected this year with the over/under was a 16.5. They are not expecting a lot from the Sixers team, and they're not entirely wrong. The Sixers team is going to finish. 19-63 19-63 and 63 altogether. In fact, over the next four years, where this process begins with this season, up until you all finally make the playoffs, during those four years, it is a 77-253 record.
1: The one thing I want to throw in, you know, everybody always said what a travesty to the game of basketball it was that the Sixers were for so long, and it always gets lengthened when people talk about it in hindsight. Like, for eight years, the Sixers didn't try to win, and it's like, no, like, dude, it was really three seasons. The fourth season, Embiid was healthy, and we were trying to win.
0: And you know what? That was just a team with growing pains. It was not long. It's hopefully roughly the length that the Baltimore Orioles rebuild under Michael Elias will take. And if, and this is our twenty eight and fifty four season coming up. If Embiid never got hurt in that
1: season, the Sixers would have snuck in as an eight seed. One hundred percent. They went on an incredible run in that January. I think they went twelve and six that month. But what I was gonna say. Everybody talks about what a travesty to the game it was that the Sixers were so bad for so long. The 10-win season is the only year that we were the worst team in the league.
0: That's absolutely true. You you do so, finish second this season, and I believe second the next year.
1: Bottom five both of those years for sure. I mean, we ended up with the third pick in both of them. And then the 10-win season was when we finally did get the number one, which this is my conspiracy theory. I'm going to drop this in here. I fully believe that Adam Silver went to Josh Harris, the Sixers owner, in the middle of that 10-win season and said, I'm going to cut a deal with you. If you fire Hinkie, you get the number one pick. And Harris took the deal. You can never convince me otherwise. You can never convince me otherwise.
0: I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to, man. I buy it. That's because, again, it, this was starting to now look like a you. After those Ray Allen threes, we start the fourth quarter. It's 94-85 heat. It's going to be brutal. And I mean, Brett Brown cannot be feeling good. This is now his eighth consecutive game against the Miami Heat, since that final series between the Spurs and the Heat went seven games. Game six, of course, famously ended, well, regulation ended, with a dagger Ray Allen three. So, maybe having some flashbacks of that as we enter the fourth quarter, and understandable if that's just how things ended. But, a funny thing happens. The Heat go cold. They go so cold. The, the Sixers are able to get back into it almost with a 10-4 run. It's 98-95 when with eight minutes and two seconds remaining in the game, Tony Roten, coiner of the term, the process, he comes out and Michael Carter-Williams enters. Now, Michael Carter-Williams, again, he already has at this point the record for most steals in a game for a rookie debut. He's got 19 points, four rebounds, 10 assists, seven steals. He's got the double-double already. He's got things that are roughly in line with his averages for the season that will get him Rook of the Year. You'd think that at this point, Michael Carter-Williams would be happy to play out the string for this game. But, but Diaz, it feels like, like there was something else on Michael Carter-Williams' mind. One could say that with a national audience
1: watching as he takes on the back-to-back champions, that Michael Carter-Williams saw this and he saw an opportunity for him. He had some shit that needed to be proven.
0: And he doesn't waste any time improving it. Five seconds after entering the game, he gets his eighth steal. Triple-double watch, officially on at this point, if it was not already. Uh, and now it's a four-point game, two minutes and 44 seconds left. He gets his fifth defensive rebound, drains it for another three. We're now talking about more than five in all the categories. You can start to even entertain the possibility. Is this going to be the first quadruple-double since David Robinson? And he doesn't let up off the gas. In the next minute and 38 seconds, he gets... Two more rebounds, another steal off James. He is one short of the triple-double with those nine steals. He has now tied Allen Iverson's regular season record for most steals by a Philly point guard or any Philly player all-time. Allen Iverson is even in attendance, because earlier that day, Allen Iverson announced his retirement, if you want a more appropriate metaphor for the end of one era and the beginning of another. So Allen Iverson is there to see it. Dr. J is there to see it. Charles Barkley is there to see it. Moses Malone is there to see it. Michael Carter-Williams is putting on a show for the Sixers Legends. But once again, he has more shit to prove. He finally, in the end of the game, starts getting hacked. And Michael Carter-Williams is about a 75% career free throw shooter. It's not his forte, but he's not going to be too bad at it. And 75% is pretty apt, because he goes to the stripe, shoots one for two. They get Evan Turner on the next possession, he goes two for two. And now, Michael Carter-Williams once again is fouled. After gone one for two previously, it is a 112 to 110 game. If he drains these two, he can seal it. And I'm not Xavier. I'm not going to present you a situation where someone fails with these high pressure free throws. Of course, he drains both of those free throws and then hounds them defensively on the other end as the time expires. Sixers have won. 114 to 110. One Justin Diaz is absolutely losing his goddamn mind next to me right now. And I am swept up in the fervor of a team that I was told was going to be the worst one that I had ever seen in my entire life. It's the first time that I ever really kind of indulged in, in the particular kind of contagious mania that you all exude. But my God, is it a pleasant mania, and my God, is it contagious. And Michael Carter-Williams does not get the triple that evening. He does get five triple-doubles in his career as a Philadelphia 76er, but unfortunately after that rookie year season, that's about the end of his career with the Sixers. Halfway through the next season, he gets traded to the Bucks, where he will fall behind Giannis Antetokounmpo, you want to talk about finding stars in the draft. Giannis Antetokounmpo taken just a few picks after our friend Michael Carter-Williams. bounced around a little bit more. He does find a home in Orlando for the last three seasons as a defensive stalwart. But this year, actually last month in February, he was waived after off-season surgery. And so currently, he is not playing. That is why I'm trying to, with the technicality, while I can, use Michael Carter-Williams as, as my guy to recall that first-ever taste of the Philly bandwagon that I am proud
1: to be on. Welcome aboard the bandwagon. We're we're glad to have you. We always are looking for additions. Yeah, Michael Carter Williams. It's so weird because like his whole rookie year, I don't believe it. I don't think he's actually this good. I don't believe it. I don't think he's actually as good. And then sure enough, once I started believing it, it is it uh, was the next season. And then Kinky made the right call to trade him. He got maximum value. And it's funny to think. So like, I was just thinking, I was like, how did that trade end up working? So we got a Lakers top, three protected first the lakers of course this was the late kobe years where oh they're not tanking because they have kobe it's like oh it's it's not tanking to have our 37 year old with a blown achilles take 30 shots a night that's not tanking it's kobe you know it's 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 only the sixers fault that iverson decided to retire versus continuing to play when uh, he didn't quite have it anymore like kobe was in those last few years but that's neither here nor there nobody would ever accuse the lakers of tanking i mean Why else would Byron Scott continue to be the head coach for three to four years? They weren't tanking, but I digress.
0: Yeah, enough about that. Let's, Let's hear some more Philly guys.
1: Right, so let me, I'll take this opportunity before I continue to rant about the process. I'm going to talk about a person that, to me, truly as a longtime follower and fanatic of Philadelphia basketball, I would consider this man to be the largest icon of all in philadelphia basketball particularly philadelphia college basketball now there have been some incredible coaches in the history of philadelphia college basketball the, the the current example would be jay wright running an incredible program for villanova we don't need to have the is villanova philly school debate right now i think it's ridiculous that people try to say it's not that's neither here nor there but if you do want to say that caveat then we still have john cheney absolute legend temple owls we still have fran dunphy great coach for many, many years at Penn before then coming to Temple and being okay at Temple. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you know, he did have the unenviable task of replacing Chaney. We also have Phil Martelli, all-time great Philadelphia coach, running St. Joe's for so long, taking those Jameer Nelson and Delonte West teams to the very cusp of the Final Four, heartbreaking loss to Oklahoma State. So we have some great coaches in Philadelphia basketball history. If you ask any of these guys that are still with us, unfortunately, John Chaney, rest in peace. But if you were to ask any of these coaches, we can even go Billy Lang, current St. Joe's coach. We can go to Steve Donahue, current Penn coach. And these last two were actually assistants for the guy that I'm about to tell you. The greatest coach in Philadelphia college basketball history, number two all time on the NCAA wins list. Known across the basketball world as the shot doctor, I'm talking about one herb McGee,
0: the Philadelphia University Rams. It's funny, so they've actually had three different names
1: in his duration, but we'll start really? We'll,
0: That's how long he's been there. Goodness gracious,,
1: we'll three different names, but we'll start we'll start at the very beginning and we'll work our way forward. So first of all, herb McGee born june twentieth, nineteen forty one. He is currently 80 years old. He'll turn 81 this summer. Herb uh, is somebody that took the basketball at a very young age. It was always very important in his life. And part of this is, unfortunately, as a child, he did suffer great personal loss. His mother passed away of cancer when he was 12 years old. And one year later, his dad succumbed to a stroke. Before he's even in high school, he's lost both of his parents. He's actually thinking about leaving, he's going to potentially enter the foster program. And at the last second, his uncle, who also lives in Philadelphia, decides to take him in. So he's able to stay in Philadelphia. And uh, you know, because of this, because of the family support that he had, he's really able to settle his roots here. And who knows what comes of the Herb McGee story, if not for his uncle stepping up at that time. Shortly thereafter, he's 13, 14 at this time. So it is time for him to go to high school. And his uncle enrolls him at West Catholic High. West Catholic at the time is one of the uh, basketball powers in Philadelphia. He had some notable teammates on this team. The the most notable would be one Jim Lynam, a former Sixers coach. He was a Sixers head coach in the 70s. And current Sixers fans will know him best for his duties as a studio analyst on the pre and post game shows for the Sixers broadcast on NBC Sports Philadelphia. He's He's the guy with the leprechaun beard.
0: It's a very good descriptor of him, actually.
1: No, he ha- he has the leprechaun beard. And what I love about him, this man, you know, you hear the phrase hoagie mouth, pure Philadelphia accent. Jim Lynham has maybe the best Philly accent I've ever heard. What I love for him is when he's particularly disgusted by something. Amy Fadul is the co-host. And, of course, he always calls her AIM. You know, it's never Amy. He's like, well, I'll tell you, AIM, that is totally unacceptable. And the Delco is just so strong with him. Herb McGee and Jim Lineham, even before they got to high school, you know, they were good friends playing in the playgrounds of Philadelphia. They're longtime classmates. So the way that the classrooms were set up is that you were sat alphabetically, right? It was always, you know, Lineham and then one behind him, M. McGee. So McGee would always be right behind them. And Herb McGee has a has a classic Philadelphia sense of humor. For the entire four years that they're in high school, McGee sitting behind them. He said, of course, he never had an answer worth copying. When I was sitting behind them, I was never able to. to It's a multiple choice. Whatever Jim has put, at least eliminated one for me. I have one of the other three. Herb McGee and Jim Lynham. You know, in spite of that, in spite of Jim not being quite the the academic inspiration that uh, might help Herb to be able to copy off his answers, they are an incredible pairing on the basketball court. So Jim Lyndham's the point guard. Herb McGee is, as you may guess, with him being the shot doctor a absolute marksman from the floor. So Jim Lionel this is a quote. He said, he understood shooting even at that age. The whole foundation of us playing effectively was that if he got open, it was in. That was a pretty strong premise. So the entire West Catholic High offense, is just built around, look, we got to set screens. We're going to have him do V cuts. Whatever the case is, if we get Herb open, good things are going to happen. Sure enough, uh, in 1959, they do win the Catholic League title, which even over, I would say, the City Public League title, The Catholic League is the elite of the elite. It's the top Philadelphia high school basketball game. When they play the semis and the finals at the Palestra, it's a sellout every single time. Which, uh, you know, to me, just people get into debates about what's the best basketball city in America. I think if you were to compare high school, college, and pro, I don't think anybody comes close to Philly. But that's a separate point. We want to stay focused on Herb here. They win the Catholic League title in 59. And, you know, on the basis of this, uh, Jim Lynam gets a scholarship to go play at St. Joe's. And another one of their teammates also got a scholarship to go play at St. Joe's. Herb does not get an offer to go to St. Joe's. And no. um, he's absolutely heartbroken. You know, he's considering giving up the game. But the same uncle that took him in when he suffered his family tragedy tells him, no, I, ha- I know a guy at Philadelphia Textile. So this is the first name. We can get you in. Basketball is so important to you. Basketball has meant so much to you. I think it would be great if you go there and you play. So Herb acquiesces. He decides to go to Philadelphia Textile. And this is where a legendary career takes place. Herb, as I said at the the top, number two all-time in NCAA wins. He is best known as an incredible coach and as a shot doctor. But he's not just a teacher. He's also a doer. In his time at Philadelphia Textile, for his career, he scores 2,235 points. This is by far the school record when he graduates. And this is when it was only the two-point shot. So he had no threes as a great shooter. You can only imagine how many he would have scored if he had a three-point line. But still graduates 2,235 points. Um, when he graduates, this is not only by far the most in Philadelphia textile history, this is number two in the history of Philadelphia College basketball. He is only behind... Tom Gola, for those who are not fully initiated in Philadelphia basketball, a LaSalle Explorer legend and the namesake of their arena now. So a significant name in Philadelphia basketball. So when he retires, he's number two behind Tom Gola. He's currently still sitting ninth on the all-time Philadelphia college scores list. And two of his players since then have broken his Philadelphia textile record. So First, it was Randy Stover um, in the 90s to score 2,369 nice points. And then later, Tehran Thomas scores 2,414. So he currently sits as number three in the history of Philadelphia Textile, which is now known as Jefferson. We get ahead of ourselves a little bit, but those are the three names of the university as a player. And when he starts as a coach, it's Philadelphia Textile. Then it becomes Philadelphia University. And Philadelphia University merged with Thomas Jefferson, so now they are just colloquially known as Jefferson.
0: Is that how long I've been out of
2: the city now? Jesus. Yeah, my cousin goes to Jefferson. Now they just have two campuses, the Center City campus and the East Falls campus. They're both Jefferson, but all the liberal arts are in East Falls and all the STEM stuff is in Center
0: City. Oh, yeah, we've never had a problem in this country with like keeping those two disciplines completely separate.
1: <laughs> as, as literal as possible, they're, they're doing it down at good old Jefferson. But just, just some other accolades from his time as a player. He wore the number four while playing at Philadelphia Textile. To this day, this is the only retired number in the history of the program. He was a two-time All-American while playing at Philadelphia Textile. He is also a member of the inaugural – Philadelphia University at the time, Hall of Fame class of 1984. So he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1984. Following his playing career, he was drafted into the NBA. He was the 62nd pick in the 1963 draft by the Boston Celtics. But as you can imagine, for a Philadelphia man, going to play for the Boston Celtics is out of the question.
0: Unacceptable.
1: That's actually not the reason why he didn't go to play. He unfortunately broke. All the fingers on his shooting hand (laughs) in the summer prior to going to training camp. He also, when he tells the story, he has this quote. He broke the five fingers on his hand. And when he's asked about why he decided not to go, he says, I told somebody the other day that there are five reasons why I wouldn't have made that team. I think he's going to talk about the fingers. He doesn't. He says, the first is Bob Cousy. The second is Bill Sharman. The third is Sam Jones. The fourth is Casey Jones. And the fifth is John Havlicek. They're all guards, and they're all in the Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, fair enough.
1: People underestimate just how stacked those Celtics teams were. They they were absolutely stacked. So he goes to his head coach at the time, Bucky Harris, and says, look, this is not an ideal situation for me to, to be able to continue my playing career. Could you help me find a coaching position? Bucky says there, how about here? At the time, he was running the varsity and the JV programs by himself. He had no assistants. Similar to our boy from last week, Mr. Big House Gaines, they create a position for him that doesn't pay particularly well. He's making a bit more than Big House was. They're paying him 5000 a year. But he is the assistant coach for the varsity. He is the head coach of the JV. He teaches phys ed classes at the university. He coaches the cross country team. He coaches the tennis team, and he coaches the golf team. So we start okay, off. Okay, the,
0: the last two are like fundamental. I, I'm not trying to disrespect track by any means. There is running in track, and there is running in basketball and football. Like you're keeping that same thing. Now you're introducing tools into it with rackets and clubs.
1: And look, I couldn't find anything in my research to see how these teams actually did. It's likely a cover up that they did probably didn't do too hot. But Herb, nonetheless, is willing to take on whatever he can to be able to get his foot in the door and to stay in the basketball world. So for four years, starting with the 63-64 season, he is the assistant. And then it's time for Bucky Harris to move on. And who is a more natural fit to take over the head coaching job than his lead assistant and the all-time leading scorer in program history. So Herb gets a chance. In the early days of his coaching, one of the things that he says is, you know, it's just important to be a sponge. So he borrows something from all of the clinics that he goes to. But the one thing that he takes with him the most is not from a clinic that he goes to. He was at a bookstore and uh, for two dollars, there was a pamphlet that was called Let's Play Defense uh, from Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight, of course, famous Indiana basketball. I believe he started with Army, ultimately ended up with Texas Tech. Whatever you want to say about his personality and his antics, one of the greatest coaches in college basketball history. One of the most successful coaches in college basketball history. Yeah, He gets that pamphlet for $2. He says the best investment he ever made in his life. Had a lot of the drills from when he was coaching at Army and a lot of the principles and a lot of the drills that were in that pamphlet, he still uses to this day as coach. Very quickly, he has great success. So 1967, the 67-68 year is his first season as head coach. In his third year, in the 69-70 season, with no players over the size of 6'5", they go on to dominate en route to a Division II championship. They had one game that was decided by less than 15 points the entire tournament run, and that was when they beat Tennessee State by 11. So they win that championship, and at the time, it was common practice for all of the Philadelphia schools. Regardless of the vision, they would still play each other. In those early 70s, Philly Textile, still at the time, beats Temple twice, and the big five schools are getting a little sick of this, and they decide, <laughs> we're not going to schedule Philly Textile anymore.
0: <laughs> so you listen to a college with Textile in the title. Like, get out of here.
1: And again, in in the case of 1970, no players above 6'5", and they dominated their way to that D2 championship. So,
0: Walt Hazard, going back to those UCLA teams, those fast breaks were all tiny little dudes. All all a bunch of tiny little 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 guys.
1: Tiny little guys. So I want to give off some of the other accomplishments from his time as the head coach. From 1990 to 1995, they won 80 straight home games. For half of a decade, if you're playing at Philadelphia University now, you ain't going to win.
0: For one full college class, two, I guess, if it was five years, every mm-hmm. single home game those students went to, they were guaranteed a win. Who but, graduating yeah. classes never saw their team lose in front of them? Well, I mean, when you put it in that
1: perspective, that's, that's almost even crazier than to say half a decade.
0: The classes of 93
1: and 94 never saw a loss which is just absolutely incredible. In 2004, he is again inducted into a Hall of Fame, and he's inducted into the Philadelphia University Hall of Fame. As a member of the inaugural 1984 class, he is inducted as a player. And then 20 years later, they said, you know what, that shit was so good, let's induct Herb again.
0: I was going to talk some smack on him for not having the Hall of Fame named after him like Clarence House Gaines, but two different inductions is a pretty good comeback to my little retort. He's also still there. They can name stuff after him later on. Hey, Clarence Gaines played in a stadium named after him for 17 years. Thank you very much.
2: That's very very true. Well,
1: you know, if you were going to get your retort in, I was going to have a perfect comeback lined up right away because... From 2004, we're going to advance forward three more years. We're going to go to February 1st, 2007. And this is when Herb McGee records win number 829 in his career. This moves him into sole possession of first place for the most wins in D2 history, ahead of a man that won 828 games in his career as head coach down at Winston-Salem, Mr. Big House Games.
0: Now, hey, let's also include his football wins so that maybe he passes him a month later.
1: Fair, fair. We got, <laughs> if we want to consider the totality of D2 athletic competition's victories, although then we got to go look at the golf and tennis teams, which, as we mentioned, oh, doesn't okay. Yeah, like- okay, no, thrown in the towel. <laughs> yeah, so 2007, he does move into first place all-time in D2 wins. Now I want to move forward to February 23rd, 2010, This is when he records win number 903, and the man whose pamphlet that he bought for $2 all those years ago when he got his start as a head coach now has to look up on the all-time wins list at him, and Bobby Knight is only looking up at one person as he is surpassed by Herb McGee for first place all-time in NCAA wins.
0: That's why you don't give out your ideas.
1: The student becomes the master, right? So for a period, Herb McGee is the winningest coach in NCAA history. I would say if 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 Duke didn't play so many more games per year than Philly U does, I'm going to spoil a little bit now. But as Coach K is set to retire this year, this will also be Herb McGee's last season as head coach of now Jefferson. If it weren't for all those many more games that Duke has played, I don't know that Coach K ever would have caught Herb. But Nonetheless, Herb still sits at second most wins all time in NCAA history. But I just want to go through just different kind of stories about him. So the one thing that his players say about him to a fault is he's one of the coaches similar to Big House Games. The development of young men is just as important, if not more important than actually winning the games. One of the things that he instilled in all of his players is timeliness, you know, the importance of being on time multiple players talk about showing up five minutes late for practice, and then they just were made to run for the entire practice as a affected their discipline. And, you know, this past October, he was doing an interview with city of basketball love, which is a great blog that tracks the high school, Philadelphia basketball scene covers some college as well. Just gives great coverage to all of those athletes and programs that may not garner the mainstream attention. City of Basketball Love, I'll give them a plug. Definitely check them out. They got a 35-minute interview with Herb McGee that began at 11.25. And Herb is a guy that is very engaging during his interviews. But the interview notes in his article, he says, McGee said at almost the precise moment that the second hand hit 12, that the interview had reached 35 minutes. I appreciate the time, but sorry, I got to go. Practice is about to start. Even in his very last season, he's not here to collect his flowers and wax poetic about what a great career he's had. He said, look, I said, I talked to you for 35 minutes. I'll talk to you for 35 minutes. It's time to go to practice. But I just want to tear through some quotes from some significant figures, both in the national and local basketball scene about Herb. And these are all things that they said once it was announced that this would be his final season upon his retirement. From Jay Wright, Coach McGee is one of the greatest coaches in the history of Philadelphia basketball. He's an educator on and off the court, as well as a legendary winner. Coach has also mastered the art of shooting and teaching shooting like no one else in the game. No one in coaching has combined teaching, mentoring, winning, and class as proficiently as Coach McGee. I alluded to John Chaney earlier. One of the most famous parts of John Chaney is his near fight with John Calipari, now the head coach of the Kentucky program. One of the great runners of a program in basketball history says coach McGee and I go way back all the way to my time as a player we played Herb's team and naturally they won we also coached together with USA basketball in Colorado it was at that time with USA basketball that I really saw what set Herb apart he built a program and a culture at Thomas Jefferson that is second to none and I wish him nothing but the best in retirement Steve Donahue, one of his assistants at Philly U, and now the head coach for the Penn Quakers. In a city that prides itself with having incredible basketball coaches, Coach McGee is the greatest of all of them. His ability to relate to young people and motivate and inspire them to be the best version of themselves separates her from so many others who have coached this game. Coach McGee has always been one of the most innovative offensive coaches in the country. The game never passed Coach McGee by. In fact, I think the game is just starting to catch up to him. One last quote that I'll give from another former assistant, Billy Lang, now the head coach at St. Joe's, spent time as an assistant with the Sixers. Coach McGee has elevated basketball in this great city for decades. He is a true institution and has stewarded his gifts on a high level. His influence is beyond the records and Hall of Fame recognition. He's been an example of loyalty to former players and coaches. It's an honor to have learned from him, both on a basketball and personal level. So, anybody that's ever come across Herb, just has nothing but the highest reverence for him. The Hall of Fame that they're referring to is not just his double induction into the Jefferson Hall of Fame. In 2011, he was also inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame. He is forever enshrined and recognized as one of the all-time greats in basketball. And to just give a top-down of his resume, 13 conference championships with Philadelphia Textiles slash Philadelphia U slash Jefferson, 31 NCAA D2 tournament appearances, He had 12 25 win seasons, including a record of 30 wins in 92, 93, and currently in the midst of 23 straight seasons with a winning record. So one of the all time institutions, not just of Philadelphia basketball, but of college basketball, any player that has come through Philadelphia that has had a questionable jump shot. They've all worked with Herb McGee, except for, notably, Ben Simmons. And Herb's (laughs) actually talked about this because he was recently asked upon the trade, like, oh, you know, did you ever offer to work with Ben? Did you ever get the chance to work with Ben? Herb just said, Ben Simmons doesn't strike me as the kind of player that wants to improve. So as nice of a guy as he is, I think, you know, the one thing that kind of resonates to me as I did my research with Herb is he also has a very low tolerance for bullshit. If you show up a minute late for practice, he's going to make you run the whole time. But if you come ready and willing to work, he's going to be the best coach that you could ever have. He's going to work with you. He's going to respect you and he's going to get the best out of you. While he is still technically active and our standard has been to go with those who are inactive, with his retirement coming up, I just didn't think there would ever be a better time to give Herb his flowers than to hopefully teach both of you and a lot of the listeners. Maybe if you have heard of Herb, I hope you learned something about him. Just an absolute institution of basketball. One of the best to ever do it. And I'm sure at plenty of times he had opportunities to go to one of the other big five schools or perhaps more prominent gigs. But he was loyal to the program that took a chance on him when he was coming out of high school. Never left. Born in Philadelphia. Never left Philadelphia. Forever in Philadelphia. Will he remain? Not just physically, but as they say in Sandlot, you know, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And Herb McGee the biggest legend there, I say, of the Philadelphia college basketball team. So that's Herb McGee, my guy for this week.
0: I think we can set a blanket rule where, like, if someone's doing their thing for 40 years or so, cool. From that point on, you don't have to retire.
1: I think that's fair. I think that's a good standard for us to institute.
0: I wish he didn't have to, to go and beat my boy. But, man, that is – Philadelphia University is – sorry, Jefferson – It's cool that this guy has existed and outlasted all of these, the names you initially threw out there with the more prominent ones, just sitting there in the background, watching mountains get built up and then get beaten down by time, relatively speaking, in terms of the context of how quickly things happen in college sports. What a guy.
1: Good old, good old. It's so funny. Like him at 80 versus how I remember him looking growing up. Has not changed one bit. Looks exactly the same. Always had just that Frank wave speaking, right? Like with the Ben Simmons quote, I don't think he's a player that's particularly interested in improving. Cuts right to the chase, doesn't it? You know, he's, he's not wasting any words. I waste many words. I, I do a lot of hyperbole, but Herb, quite the opposite. Kudos, Herb
2: McGee.
0: Well, and kudos to you for making a great case for him, but we got one more to hear. And so without further ado, Xavier, please.
2: Yeah, so real quick before I bring up my guy, I do want to give a quick shout out to Bill Milkvie, the owl without a vowel, as it is the 71st anniversary today of the oldest record that is still unbroken in the NCAA basketball record books. He scored 54 consecutive points for Temple in a game versus Wilts University on March 3rd, 1951. No other Temple player hit a free throw or a layup or just happened to hit a jump shot in that time. He scored 54 straight for the team. He outscored Wilkes by himself
0: with 73 points that day to Wilkes's 69. I mean, the question that immediately comes to mind is, how many points did he do consecutively before the team started trying to make it happen? Because clearly for some amount of that, that was like how, how the Grizzlies were selling out to get Jai's 50-piece the other night. There comes a time where your teammates want you to, to do some cool shit. So you gotta wonder, like, was it 18 in? Like, hey, when, when was the last time any of the rest of us scored? See, that's interesting to
2: think about, but Temple was also very bad at this point. They had the NCAA's leading scorer and were still a 500 team. It could also have just been that everyone couldn't score even though they tried. But enough about one of the greatest nicknames in sports. I do want to talk about a person who is a legend in two areas, first and foremost, uh, Philadelphia, and who also, surprisingly, is even more of a lifer than Herb McGee. 67 years, 67 years in his chosen sport, starting from playing in college versus Herb McGee's 62 from the time he first came to Philly U.S.A. player, or Philadelphia Textile at that point. The person I want to talk about is Francis Joseph Kilroy, otherwise known as Bucko Kilroy. Bucko Kilroy, born May 30th, 1921, and born and raised in the Port Richmond area of Philadelphia went to Northeast Catholic High School, which at one point was the world's largest Catholic high school for boys and had 5,000 students. Absolutely insane. (laughs) Unfortunately, it no longer exists. It did close uh, 12 years ago. But at this point, it was the largest Catholic high school for boys in the world and one of the largest schools just in general. So with all of these people, hard to stand out. Uh, But Kilroy did stand out on the Falcons football team and played a major role on the 1937 team that won the Philadelphia Catholic League Championship, which was the school's fourth in a row. It might not be as important as basketball, but as Diaz did point out earlier, Philadelphia Catholic League is a big deal, and especially back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, etc., it was really big deal. As a standout for this big school, this Philadelphia Catholic League winning school, he was a highly sought-after recruit. He was recruited by Notre Dame, Seriously considered going there, but he decided he wanted to stay home and decided to come to Temple and play college football for future Hall of Fame coach Ray Morrison, one of the innovators of the forward pass, because the forward pass was not really a thing until this guy Kilroy played for Temple from 1940-1941 and was a star on both sides of the line of scrimmage. So he was a middle guard, aka nose tackle now, and a offensive offensive lineman. The 1940 Temple team uh, went four four and one uh, with wins over Muhlenberg, Bucknell, Villanova, and Michigan State.
1: One of these schools is not like the other.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was this. So they also they tied Holy Cross that year, what? and then and then their last game was against the University of Oklahoma down in Norman, Oklahoma, <laughs> where they only lost nine nine to six. big kicker day college football schedules were really weird because almost everyone was independent at this point there were only a few conferences but this temple team did well in 1940 went into 1941 you know feeling very confident and that confidence was well placed so the 1941 team starts off their season 5-0 they had a 31-9 win over kansas uh wins over vmi georgetown and bucknell And then a 14 to nothing win over Penn State. This Owls team ends up ranked 13th after that Penn State game before finishing the season 7 and 2 with further wins over Nova and Holy Cross and losses at Boston College and at Michigan State. This is the last time that Temple was ranked in the AP poll until 1974, and the last time they beat Penn State until 2015, a game that we were at and celebrated very, very significantly.
1: That was what my question was going to be. That oh, What an incredible game that was because Temple went three and out and Penn State busted like a 60-yard touchdown on their first drive. And it was like, well, here we fucking go again. And then I think we sacked Hackenberg, I want to say 10 times in that game. At least 10. 10 times. My one memory, I mean, I, I won't say the name of who it was, but one of our friends had quite a few beverages before the game and was passed out a road down in front of me. And at one point, Temple got an interception and nearly ran it back for a touchdown. In his uh, passed out stupor, when the crowd went crazy, he instinctually jumped to his feet and raised his arms in celebration. But due to his inebriation, he was quite off balance, so he went tumbling down three rows. Um, and everybody ended up being fine. But that <laughs> is other other than the the incredible win. That is uh, that's the one memory that sticks out to me from that game.
0: Like we've said, Philly sports are intoxicating. <laughs> So on that
2: 1941 team, uh, Kilroy was AP first team All-East and honorable mention All-American. Didn't get to play any bowls uh, because obviously the bowl system as we know it didn't really happen until the 80s. In the 1941 season, there were five total bowls, the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, Cotton Bowl, and the Sun Bowl. And bowl selection criteria was really strict. Four of the top five teams in the AP poll didn't even get to play in one, including national champion Minnesota. But bowls are weird. Have always been weird. It's also really weird that in Temple's first 116 seasons of playing college football, which is from the late 1800s all the way till 2009, they played in two bowl games ever. And one was the 1935 Sugar Bowl, and the other was the 1979 Garden State Bowl.
1: The inaugural Sugar Bowl, we should mention as well, right?
2: Yes, fairly certain it was the it was the first one where they did Tulane. Lose, they did lose the two lane after blowing a 14 nothing lead.
0: But like once you've been to the first one, you don't really need to go back. If you've seen it once, you've seen it a thousand times. You're just making sure everyone gets a chance.
1: Well, and and go, going down to New Orleans to lose the two lane and blowing a 14 nothing lead. I just got to say,
2: you can take the school out of Philly, but you can't take the Philly out of the school. <laughs> so, at this time, Gilroy, very accomplished college football player, but It is the 1940s. In 1942, Gilroy joins the war effort and served with the Merchant Marines for a little while. During one of his breaks uh, when he was back in Philadelphia, he did just walk into the office of the Philadelphia Eagles and ask for a tryout. And they said, huh, okay, sure. He tried out and was impressive and then said, okay, I have to go back overseas now and just left.
1: (laughs) Just wanted to prove a point real quick.
2: I to see how I would do. At this point, the whole NFL is in disarray. Most young men of playing age had left to join military. Rosters were decimated, and they were left relying on the few people who were deferred from the draft. That includes married men with young children, men who worked in important civilian occupations, such as agriculture or munitions, and men who were deemed unfit for service due to injury, plus men who had done their service and come back. Playing football was really unimportant. To the point where one future Hall of Famer, Bill Hewitt, quit in the middle of the season uh, and retired after ridicule for playing football despite the draft board designating him as not fit for service. The 1943 draft had 32 rounds, and most of the players never showed up because they all reported for the military instead. These teams are really struggling and unfortunately exacerbating this issue. There was an unofficial ban on African-American players at this point. Weirdly enough, the NFL had African-American players until the 30s and then stopped after some restructuring. And there was a hush-hush, wink-wink, hey, don't do this thing from some of the guys in charge. So for about 10 or 11 years, there weren't any in the league, which doesn't help. So because of the lack of players, the Cleveland Rams got special permission to suspend their season, which left only nine teams. The Bears, the Packers, the Lions, the Chicago Cardinals— Washington, the Giants, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the Philadelphia Eagles and the Pittsburgh Steelers. However, the Eagles and Steelers were both hurting for players and was unsure if they could fulfill a season. Art Rooney uh, knew that the league needed at least eight teams to survive, so he proposed a merger of the Eagles and the Steelers, which was a rehash of an idea that he had previously had for a team called the Pennsylvania Keystoners. The Eagles owner, Alexis Thompson, who was serving in the Army at that moment, since he was only 32, didn't like the idea, but liked Rooney and owed him for their previous Eagles-Steelers swap, so he signed off on it. In case you don't know that story, Rooney sold the Steelers to then 28-year-old Alexis Thompson in 1940, who planned to move them to Boston and call them the Ironmen. Rooney took the money from selling the Steelers, and used it to buy half of the Eagles to partner with co-owner Burt Bell. He was going to change the Eagles into a full Pennsylvania team called the Keystoners, who played half their games in Philadelphia and half in Pittsburgh. But the move for the Ironmen to Boston didn't work out, and so Rooney, Thompson, and Bell had a meeting where they completely switched tactics, and Thompson's Steelers would move to Philadelphia and become the Eagles, and Rooney and Bell's Eagles would move to Pittsburgh and be the Steelers. So in the space of three months of one offseason, they traded cities with all Eagles players becoming Steelers players and vice versa.
1: That just really particularly stings as a person that grew up as an Eagles fan. And to think that if neither of those things happened and both franchises proceeded as normal, I would be a significantly better human being. Like, I would be better as a... <laughs> I got to experience that many championships, like, from such a young age. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a curse, not just for me, but for anybody who's ever come across me. Listen, I would have had, you know, the worst quarterback to ever win a Super Bowl in history with Ben Roethlisberger. That would have been fun.
0: Hey, look, Trent Dilfer has something to say real quick.
1: In that Super Bowl, though, no quarterback has ever played worse than Roethlisberger did in that Super Bowl. I believe he went 8 of 21 passing.
0: Brian Dilfer retracts his statement. <laughs> On the so, whole, yeah. but So the two owners
2: agree to combine for the season, and the Phil Pitt Steagles are born. Love uh, the Steagles. They still need more players, though, and Bucko comes back, uh, finishes his tour with the Merchant Marines, and the Eagles, half of the Steagles, remembers him. So they say, hey, want to come play for us? So he joins up, and... Despite the 32-round draft, Bucko was not drafted. So Bucko is technically an undrafted free agent in a year of 32-round drafts. (laughs) Bucko plays nine games that season for the Steagles. They go 5-4-1, which is technically the first winning season in Eagles history because the Eagles and Steelers share that season in the record books. Eagles had not had a winning season their first 10 years in the league. So the Steagles is the Eagles' first winning season. And they did win a game against the Giants— Despite fumbling 10 times in that game, losing five of them, they won 28 to 14. Still the NFL record for most fumbles in one game.
1: I mean, yeah, that's what you figure about 70 to 75 offensive plays in a game max. So that's
2: saying every
0: other set of downs, basically. I'm amazed that they scored 28 points, giving away five times. They still got four touchdowns.
2: 21, 21 points were in the fourth quarter. They scored a lot late. uh, Got their
1: shit together.
0: There were some betters that were very upset
2: with that. (laughs) You look great for three quarters. So things get better for the NFL in 1944. Some people come back, and the Eagles were able to go back to being their own team. Pittsburgh did still combine with the Cardinals. They were awful and were derisively known as the Carpets, but the Eagles are their own team again. Kilroy quickly establishes himself as a key player in the trenches. In the 1948 NFL championship game, which was played during a massive blizzard in Philadelphia, Bucko recovers a fumble in the fourth quarter inside the 10-yard line uh, that led to Steve Van Buren's five-yard touchdown run, the only score in the 7-0 game. In fact, the Eagles rewarded the players in those teams with a $500 bonus and a cigarette lighter. And Kilroy later stated, uh, We got rings, too. We bought them for $65. Kilroy... Plays 13 seasons uh, with the Steagles slash Eagles. He recovers 11 bumps and had five interceptions, four in one season, which is pretty wild. He was selected to the Pro Bowl three straight times at the tail end of his career from 1952 to 1954. The records are kind of interesting for that time. So there are some sources that said he had six All-Pros, some that had seven. I can't only verify one AP, but I, I did see that he had multiple UPI All-Pros. He had different selectors at the time, so he he was an All-Pro. We know this. How much the league officially recognizes, we're not 100% sure. He was also a player coach for the Eagles during his last three seasons. One thing about Bucko is that he developed a bit of reputation as a dirty player.
1: You ain't cheating, you ain't trying, baby.
2: He's, he, he talked about how it was fun because you could use your forearms to hit people a little bit back in the day. And in 1953, he did fracture the back of Giants QB Arnold Galifa Video footage later showed it looked pretty unintentional, but they did have to take him out of the game because all the Giants players wanted to team up and beat the crap out of him just during the plays. Teammate Chuck Bednarik called him the dirtiest football player he ever saw.
1: I just want to say, for Chuck Bednarik to say that somebody is the dirtiest football player you've ever seen, Chuck Bednarik who is perhaps best known for the image of him standing over the lifeless body he did survive, of Frank Gifford after he absolutely leveled him, pointing down at him. Everybody knows that picture. For Chuck Bednarik to say that Bucko Kilroy is the dirtiest player that he's ever seen, that means something.
2: There there was a great NFL Films uh, video about this, or I heard them say this like specifically. Steve Van Buren said uh, there was one time – He followed an offensive lineman back to the huddle and just kicked him in the ass. And old man Steve Van Buren said, kicked him in the bottom. Uh, (laughs) A Chicago newspaper writer once uh, described him as a knuckle duster in knee pants who gives our fellows that boyish grin while knocking their teeth loose in the pileup.
0: He's absolutely made for this town and he has this career, but I'm waiting for your, your patented transition that we're going to get at some point to a life that I hope is not going to make us sad. There is
2: very little negative to talk about with Bucko Kilroy. Oh, thank you. It's mostly positive today. So Kilroy was, despite this reputation, Kilroy only ever tossed from two games. One was a preseason game against the bears. Ray Bray hit him in the face with his mask. And at this point, Not everyone wore face masks on their helmets, so Kilroy wasn't wearing one, and had his nose split completely open. Uh, So while he's on the ground bleeding, he does just stick his leg out and kick Bray right in the groin, causing him severe pain and leading to his ejection from this preseason game. That's what you get. So in in 1955, uh, Life magazine called him the toughest of the NFL's bad men and had a big cover story with a picture of him grinning and then pictures of what they alleged were dirty play, and then an allegation that he told teammates, quote, use your feet, not your hands. You'll only bust your hands in terms of kicking slash stomping players to injure them. So Bucko knows he's a physical guy, but he doesn't think he's dirty. So he sues Life Magazine for libel. And (laughs) it goes to a trial. Otto Graham testifies against him to say that, no, Bucko is dirty and terrible. But most NFL players do come on and say, "No, no, he's fine," and so he does win a judgment against Life Magazine, where the jury awards him eleven thousand dollars. He later says it was twenty-five thousand. I'm not sure if he's either misremembering or you know adjusted for inflation, but it was more than his salary for the
0: NFL. And eleven is twenty-two championship bonuses.
1: You can say anything you want about me if you're going to pay me eleven thousand dollars afterwards. <laughs>
2: So Bucko retires in 1955, but he's a football lifer. So he stays with the Eagles as an assistant coach and an executive and was part of the team that won the 1960 NFL championship. So Bucko was on the first three Eagles championship teams. He was the Eagles player personnel director and one of the original five talent scouts in NFL history. And this is where we get into Bucco's second career. So inspired by what is currently happening in the NFL right now, the scouting combine and everything, Bucko does leave the Eagles after having been there for 20 years and moves to Washington where he's a scout for a couple of years before then moving to Dallas. At Dallas, he is instrumental in drafting Roger Staubach. Most teams were passing on him because of his four-year Navy commitment. Bucko said, no, we need this guy. It's fine. We can wait. Bucko helps put together the foundation of the great uh, Tom Landry teams of the 70s. While in Dallas, Bucko creates the Cowboys' information-based grading system for selecting players, aka he came up with number grades for prospects. And one of the reasons is he was really bad at names, so he found it easier to, to grade them so people always knew who he was talking about. A lot of people think of Gil Brandt, and Tech Schramm when they when it comes to the modern scouting system. But Bucko Kilroy was with them the whole time. He, he once said, The more measurements you get, the more you could confirm. Anything else was an estimate or opinion. I used tests and numbers as a barometer. You measured them against players who had been successful. You didn't pick guys out of a football yearbook. Ernie Acorsi, who was the GM of the Baltimore Colts, the Browns, and the Giants from 1982 to 2006, once said, Gil, Grant, and Bucko put together a system in Dallas. We never had a system. We drafted it okay, but it was by the seat of the pants. Everyone talks about Gil in the computers, but Bucko never gets enough credit. He took that scouting system to New England and really refined it. He took it to the next level. In 1971, Bucko moves to New England and becomes a key cog of their front office until 2007. Bucko is with the Patriots for 36 years until he dies.
0: See, they, okay, you did just pull his death out of nowhere. You were just like, oh yeah, that 2007 Patriots team. And you know, I it's like, oh yeah, the 18 1 Patriots team. Yeah, and then after they lose to the Giants, he dies.
2: He's either 101 right now or dead. So it's not like. It. It's, it's still right, here's that's, I'll that's say, quite We though, do that's specifically
0: time, right? know that he died after maybe the worst Super Bowl loss in the Tom Brady era. Sorry. Right. Dare we Third say time. he
1: lost his will to live.
0: <laughs> what was that, David Tyree? <laughs> Actually, Bucko, I think Bucko died in the
2: summer, so I don't think he, I don't think he saw that one. So we don't have to worry about that because uh, that was that that would have been February 2008. Can't can't blame that one on, on it. Bucko with his stats and information based uh, scouting creates many of the scouting systems that become NFL fixtures. He is one of the co-founders of the NFL Scouting Combine and one of the revolutionaries of the modern NFL draft which is not just picking players that went to school near you, but actually analyzing player performance and picking based on need and talent level. Data? You
0: mean using data?
2: Yes, Bucko is the... Take that is for the, data. ...is essentially the creator of analytics and measurements in drafting players.
1: The one thing I'll say is, while I agree, Bucko, thank you for your contributions to the draft process. I do miss what the nba used to have i think every team in every sport should get one territory pick to start the draft keep the hometown kid that's how philadelphia warriors got will chamberlain i think it's a good thing but if we want to go with the bucko method and evaluate and decide who the actual best players are i guess that's okay too.
2: so in 1982 the boston globe called him the man who helped create the science of pro scouting in that in a football sense he's a genius One of his protégés, Dick Steinberg, who later became the GM of the Jets, said in 1992, he knows as much about pro football as anyone in history. He's never been wrong in his life. After moving to New England, he was the director of player personnel from 1971 to 1978, GM from 1979 to 1982, vice president from 1983 to 1996, putting together the team that made the Patriots' first ever Super Bowl in 1985, and then was scout consultant slash head of scouting from 1994 to 2006, putting together the team that would become the first Patriots dynasty. He was directly responsible for picking the Patriots first two NFL Hall of Famers in the 70s, John Hannah and Mike Haynes. And one of my favorite things that I've seen is that once uh, Scott Pioli was being interviewed about selecting Tom Brady, and he talked about how they had Brady in the 51 to 100 ranking on their draft board and considered selecting him in the third round. But they figured they were set at QB and they needed to focus on other needs. He said, quote, he was far and away our highest rated player, but we had these other positions of need. And then finally we get to the sixth round and we're all kind of looking at each other and there's a group of us in the draft room. And kiddingly, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Bucko Kilroy who said, quote, is that kid even still alive right now? Did he get arrested last night? Is he dead? What's going on? So then they pull the trigger and draft Tom Brady.
0: I mean, I'll be honest; it's yep. kind of a disqualifying action. For me. <laughs> like that's, I, he just he just lost the competition here. He's a great guy, but that's if we're talking about today's categories. Philly,
2: right. <laughs> if they didn't draft Tom Brady, would Tom Brady have dropped the pass in the Super Bowl, leading
0: to the Eagles' fourth championship? Right, think no, like, Donovan I can... McNabb would have already won one several <laughs> years before.
1: That is fair. I mean, if, if he didn't throw up. If he didn't throw up, then maybe he would have won one. But
0: <laughs>
2: Another thing about uh, Bucko was his Buckoisms, which is how they were known. Not only was he not great with names, he was not great with words, just in general. He, he He was good with measurements, but not words. When he talked about the cost of starting a National Scouting Combine, he said the cost was prohibited, and that in the midst of negotiations, he said... Howard's accusing me of collision. and Yeah, not a good pronouncer. No, no, he, n- not, not a great pronouncer, but fucking fantastic scout.
1: Well, I mean, this also gets back to our conversation earlier about, you know, Philadelphia University merging with Thomas Jefferson. We're keeping the STEM and the liberal arts separated. Bucko is a representation of that failing of our education system. There's you can be good at one or you can be good at the other. Very rare that you get somebody that's good at both. So, Bucko is not bucking the trend.
2: And the the last thing I want to say is that one one time when he was being interviewed about coming up with stats and tests to figure out who to draft, uh, he did say uh, teams used to draft by hearsay, picking players out of college yearbooks. One owner, whom I won't embarrass by naming, draft on looks. If his wife thought a player was good looking, he'd draft him. That is what the draft was like until Bucko came around.
1: You know, we are in March, March Madness is coming up, and it does seem that the people that win the bracket challenges are the people that pick based on I like that mascot or that's my favorite color. So I'm just saying there might be something to this uh, who-does-the-wife-think-is-hot method. Look at Joe Burrow. (laughs) Joe Burrow ended up being a great pick. Look at that fucking guy.
0: He would still definitely go first overall.
2: So Bucko overall spends 64 years in the NFL plus his three years at Temple. He has the second longest NFL career, to only Giants owner, uh, former owner Wellington Mara, a true football lifer who had thirty-plus year careers with multiple teams, had a All-Pro level career with the Eagles, and then you know just happened to create the scouting combine in modern day scouting, which helps all of us get crazy when it comes to March and April enjoying all the mock drafts and combine talk in pro days
0: every time i watch a 40 meter dash i'll think of bucko thank you bucko and thank you xavier i think that was great look here's i mean let's get down to it folks we need our number one philly guy mcw is is a crystallizing moment but as we said he spends a season and a half and I will be damned if we let the man that is instrumental in drafting Tom Brady. A fine guy in his own right. A guy very deserving of reconsideration someday. But if we are talking the ultimate Philly guy, I will be damned if we select the person that is described as instrumental in Tom Brady's drafting.
1: Yeah, just what I would say is between Bucko and Herb, both had a decision to make did they want to go up to Boston and did they want to be a traitor to Philadelphia? And <laughs> Or McGee said no. And Bucko Kilroy said yes. And he did go to the Patriots. And he did draft Tom Brady. And Tom Brady did then beat the Eagles in the 2004 Super Bowl. So if we are looking at this through a strictly Philadelphia lens, which I always am, not even just on this episode, that's the only glasses I wear are Philadelphia glasses. It needs to be heard. It simply does, in my opinion.
2: I'm fine with Herb McGee. I mean, the only thing I was going to say about Herb is that he's technically still active. But oh, we have the 40-year rule. We have the 40-year rule that we just
0: made up. Yeah, like
1: 40 minutes ago, Xavier, keep up.
2: Also, it's like, is he too good to be a guy? But we've been very loose with that rule anyway. And because he is a Philadelphia lifer, I'm,
0: I'm fine with that. I'm fine with yeah. Herb McGee. <laughs> I think he has the Genesee guy. And Diaz, like you said, Herb said, I'm staying in Philly. And for that reason, I think you have something to say to him.
1: So Herb McGee, the 1984 inductee into the Philadelphia University Athletics Hall of Fame. The 2004 inductee into the Philadelphia University Athletics Hall of Fame. The 2011 inductee into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, as he reaches the twilight of his coaching career... Is able to add one more hall to his impressive list. And perhaps the most impressive of all is his induction into the Hall of Guy. Welcome, Herb McGee. It is our honor to have you grace these famed halls.
0: Our honor and our privilege. I look forward to creating a plaque for him soon. Uh, a reminder that you can find some, some very silly plaques for all of our inductees at our Twitter, at RememberGuysPod which we're trying to be active with. We're not doing anything fancy there, but hey, come find some fun, dumb sports things that we see every day. We only get to do this once a week. That's all I have, fellas, but do either of you have any parting words for our listeners here? As
1: I approach the bowling alley, trying to set my own records, perhaps get on Herb's level as a Philadelphia legend, I'm I'm going through my, uh, my Willis Reed moment. I was trying to think of a Philadelphia guy, but Willis Reed on the bum ankle. We're going
0: in here. We're going to knock down some pins.
1: We're going to get some strikes and spares, baby.
0: Well, there we go. That's all we've got this week, folks. I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier.
1: And I'm your other co host, Diaz. And to amend a famous Harry Callis quote Herb McGee, you are the guy. Until next week, it's folks.
2: A good thing this is
0: just the game.